Hi there, I'm Chloe Veltman and this is Voicebox, your weekly guide on public radio and podcast to the art of singing and the best of the vocal music scene. Thanks for joining me this evening. Actually, on tonight's show, we're going to look at the worst of the vocal music scene for a change. Composer and blogger Brian Rosen is here for a chat about what makes a song really, really bad. Hi, Brian. Thanks for coming into the studio. Hi, Chloe. Thanks for having me here again. The inspiration for this week's topic came from a discussion that Brian and I have been having over the past few months, prompted by the popularity of this song. 7 a.m. waking up in the morning, gotta be fresh, gotta go downstairs, gotta have my bowl, gotta have cereal, seeing everything, the time is going, ticking on and on, everybody's rushing, gotta get down to the bus stop, gotta catch my bus. You're listening to Voicebox with me, Chloe Veltman. Voicebox is available as a free weekly podcast via iTunes and also via the Voicebox website at voicebox-media.org. The website features a wealth of information about the project. And please connect with us on Facebook and via Twitter. The track we just heard is Friday by the teen pop singer Rebecca Black. With its extensive use of auto-tune, bland lyrics and persistently grating melody, Friday received almost universally negative reviews when it was released in spring 2011. Listeners labelled it everything from the worst song of all time and a laughing stock to inept and hilariously dreadful. On the other hand, Black's widely derided songwriting and singing efforts have done her, or at least her college savings fund, some favours. Her YouTube video went viral, topping all other YouTube videos of 2011, with 180 million views, according to The Hollywood Reporter. MTV selected the teen to host its first online awards show in April 2011, and the song has been covered on the popular Fox TV series Glee. Notoriety turned the teen into an instant celebrity, in other words. But does Friday deserve the moniker worst song of all time? Is badness an entirely subjective thing or are there specific standards that go into writing a truly bad song? And why, if they're so reviled, are bad songs often so very popular? These are some of the questions that we're going to explore on tonight's show. So, Brian, what do you think of Friday? Did this song really deserve the disdain that it received when it appeared online last spring? Well, there's certainly a lot wrong with this song. Uh, you can spend a lot of time with it and, and analyze exactly its sins. Um, you know, everything from from just the the dumb lyrics uh, to the the monotonous one note uh, solo line to the performance to the way she sings everything. Um, the it's amazing, very th- very nasal. It, it, yeah, it, it, you know, here Friday, the diphthong <laughs> approach to everything. Um, you know, there's there's so much wrong with it. But really, I mean, is it? Is it that much worse than so much other things that are that are being produced? I think it's unique in that it's a perfect storm in that almost every example of bad stuff 
you can think of is, is exhibited here. <laughs> um, and, but also that you've got this perfect storm of the internet um, where, and people care so much about music because it says so much about them that that outrage just sort of like wells up inside of them when they hear this sort of thing. <laughs> well, common sense would decree that a song as apparently unbearable as Friday ought to have sunk without a trace rather than become the most listened to track of 2011 on YouTube. And yet when we think of terrible songs, they're nearly always well known. In fact, most of the songs on tonight's playlist will be recognizable to many of our listeners. How can we account for this paradox, Brian? Well, it really is. It, so, so when you say bad, you're implying some sort of metric. Mm. Uh, and, and that is a sort of taste thing. Um, mm -hmm. And taste constantly changes. And, and, and again, people care about this because your musical taste, your own personal metric, says so much about um, who you are. Right. It, it, it identifies like if you like a, a certain kind of music, it says something about you. Uh, and so people identify with that very strongly. So uh, I, I think when people people want to feel part of a community saying that this is universally bad. And so they want to share that with their friends. You have to see how bad this is. And it's a sort of common bonding thing. Uh, sociologists would be able to speak to that more, I think. But I, I think there's some accuracy in that. Yeah. Also, it seems sort of perverse to me that, that a piece of music needs to have been noticeable, popular or memorable to be deemed the worst ever, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, well, I guess if it's not notable, uh, if there's nothing sort of like to... Um, uh, to pay attention to, then uh, it's it's not almost it's almost not even worth noticing as bad. Right. Um, yeah, I guess that has to be outstandingly bad. So, I mean, to what extent do you think that the bad good divide simply is an issue of taste? Well, I mean, the the only objective metric is is how we respond to it, and that changes over time. I guess there are some things like if if you could find something that nobody would ever like. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I don't think there is any objective metric. Yeah, I think it just it's just a subjective thing. Yeah, and it's amazing, you know, what can make something seem unlikable to someone. I mean, it, it, I think culture plays a really important role. I mean, for example, there are many, many people outside of uh, Chinese community, for example, who say they don't like Chinese opera. Um, they don't, they, and, and I mean, really, when it comes down to it, it's that they're not used to hearing those kinds of melodies, those kinds of conventions that are part of Chinese opera, really. Right. It's, it, I, I'm sure musicologists have studied this. Is like, how much do you have to learn how to appreciate music? I mean, some music tends to be like innate, you know, guttural, like rhythmic stuff. You just sort of like move to it immediately. But then there are other sort of more exotic sounds that if you weren't familiar with them, if you weren't raised with them, uh, you would look at this as bizarre noise. Mm -hmm. um, and... Um, and, but some people find these sort of bizarre noise things and, and say, okay, I want to find out what's going on there. I want to learn more about it. So a lot of things which some people respond to as bad are really just maybe they're not engaging enough to figure out that it's actually pretty interesting. They're just different. Yes. So is it possible to identify traits that bad songs universally or almost universally share? And if it is, what are some of these elements of badness when it comes to vocal music? I mean, I think maybe we touched upon a few of them with Rebecca Black's song. Yeah, I mean, those those lyrics are, are, are pretty dumb. Um, there are many uh, sins you can commit while while writing a song or performing a song. I think, uh, you know, certainly if you look at the, the list of, of songs that are generally considered the worst uh, ever, I mean, you'll see things like, you know, really, really horribly offensively dumb lyrics uh, is one. Um, you know, sometimes people really react to uh, histrionics, right? Uh, just sort of like this sort of... Uh, um, hard on your sleeve sort of thing which uh, many people find repulsive although some people like that's exactly the sort of music that they like overly emotional mm -hmm. uh, or or you know just disturbingly cloying <laughs> and then there's a there's um the sort of earworm phenomenon mm -hmm. uh which is a very 
common thing. You know, the, the song that just won't get out of your head, which normally, I mean, you want a hook, right? When you write a pop song, you want there to be a hook that sort of grabs you and is catchy and stays in your head. But if you get an earworm, if you get a hook that's on steroids and it just won't leave ever, uh, then you've got a problem. Then you've got something which like you love it the first time you hear it, you want to hear it again. And then you hear it the second time. And then you after about like the hundred third, two hundredth time and you realize that you can't stop hearing it. That's a bit of a problem. How big it's grown, but friend, it hasn't been too long. It wasn't big. I laughed at her and she got mad. The first day that she planted it was just a twig. Then the first snow came and she ran out to brush the snow away so it wouldn't die. Tonight's voice box with me, Chloe Veltman. We're exploring what elements go into making a song really hard on the eardrums. My guest in the studio tonight is blogger and composer Brian Rosen. We just heard Honey, a song from 1968 by Bobby Goldsborough, followed by My Humps by the Black Eyed Peas, which brings us to the first in our list of ingredients that make for bad songs lousy lyrics. What are your thoughts about how the words are used in the two songs we just heard, Brian? Man, I I just wish they weren't used at all. He would have just said la la la. That would have been better. Th- those lyrics in Honey, it's just that he starts out by saying like, "See that trig, how big it's grown. It wasn't that long ago. It wasn't big." And that's just such a weak, weak line. There's just something about the fact that yeah, look how big it is. It wasn't big. It, there's this immediate reversal that just feels wrong and lame and weak. Um, and then the, the fact that like through, throughout the entire song, he's just a jerk to her the entire <laughs> yeah, time. Yeah, he calls her dumb or kind of dumb. Kind of dumb and kind of smart. I mean, I imagine like, I'm just trying to imagine the time where like somebody thought like, oh yeah, that's a good lyric. Kind of dumb, but kind of smart. That says a lot. That's poetic. I'm just wondering what, what got into his head that made him think that that was a good thing to say. And then he, he laughs at her. He, she slips and falls and he laughs at her till she cries. And then it's supposed to be a tearjerker. I mean, the guy's <laughs> a jerk the entire time and it's so maudlin and so, oh God, it just kills me. <laughs> what about My Humps? That's an, another song that's just like about, uh, well, you know what it's about, clearly, but it has nothing to say besides that. <laughs> and the very notion of calling them My Humps is like, wh- what? <laughs> Lump, what? Lumps and humps. Lady Lumps? <laughs> Again, like wh- who's sitting in their studios like, oh yeah, it's going to sell. But you know what, Brian? You know, that song became a huge hit. It charted at number three in the United States and stayed there for about two months. How'd you explain that? People like the lumps. <laughs> At least the first couple hundred times, I guess. I, 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 <laughs> I mean, the Black Eyed Peas is normally kind of a fairly intelligent band as well. I mean, what were, what were they thinking? Uh, yeah. 
I wish I could tell you. I, you know, we should we should call them up. Call them up. Somebody get the Black Eyed Peas on here. I want, to, I want them to defend themselves. Yeah, well, they made bank, clearly, yeah. with the song. So. so, but lyrics don't have to be dumb to incite bad vocal music. Clever lyrics can also make for dubious listening. Tell us about the fine line that separates lyrics that are smart from lyrics that are too smart, Brian. Well, this is certainly something which, which really goes to taste. I mean, some people love these sorts of things, and some people just like think they're just ridiculously... You know, just 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 cloying to um to twee, uh, and for me, like the the song "One Week" by the Bare Naked Ladies just exemplifies like, okay, you're just being a little too clever, a little too smug, a little too happy with yourself. Uh, it's this really infectious sort of like one note um song, or or just sort of like a patter song almost, where just like this rhythmic uh, repeating of 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 a single note, and it's. You know, I, I understand the appeal and the catchiness, but then like each little turn is just so clever and so cutesy that it just it just grates on me. Yeah, I um, took the liberty of just printing out a few of the lines I wanted to share. So I'm not going to do this as the singers do it in the rhythm, but the part of the song goes, Like Harrison Ford, I'm getting frantic. Like Sting, I'm tantric. Like Snickers, guaranteed to satisfy. Like Kurosawa, I make mad films. Okay, I don't make films, but if I did, they'd have a samurai. Yeah, I mean, they're certainly taking a lot from the hip-hop uh, genre, which is like clever internal rhymes that sort of refer to um, pop culture things that wouldn't make any sense unless you sort of had back knowledge, mm-hmm. um, like like Sting I'm Tantric. Well, if you didn't happen to know that Sting practices tantric, you know, sex, um, then that wouldn't make any sense. But because you do know, you sort of feel like you're in on the joke. Yeah. You're like, oh, yeah, that's cool. I like it. But actually, it's not. Mm-hmm. It's not cool. So when we were discussing this song one week, you also talked about R.E.M., which have, have a song, uh, It's the End of the World, as we know it, which is in many ways quite similar. I mean, down to the monotonous one note type of rap style singing and uh, also the fact that they bring in celebrity names as well in that song. Yeah, they do. But it's interesting. They don't have that same sort of like pop culture reference where they, are, they mention pop reference things, but they don't have the sort of like insidey joke things. Mm-hmm. And so I think it sort of stands better as a song because of that. You don't get that sort of like tweet, look how clever I am in the way I'm writing these lyrics. It feels more authentic. Also, the music's better. Let's listen to One Week by the Bare Naked Ladies. And then just to compare, it's the end of the world as we know it from R.E.M. It's been one week since you looked at me. Cocked your head to the side and said I'm angry. Five days since you laughed at me. Saying get back together, come back and see me. Three days since the living room. I realized it's all my fault but couldn't tell you. Yesterday you'd forgiven me. But it'll still be two days till I say I'm sorry. Hold it now and watch a hoodwink. Does it make you stop think? You'll think you're looking at Aquaman. I summon fish to the dish. Although I like the shallow Swiss, I like the sushi. Cause it's never touch a frying pan. Hot like wasabi when I bust rhymes. Big like Leanne rhymes. Because I'm all about value. Dirt campers got the mad hits. You try to match wits. You try to hold me but a bust through. Gonna make a break and take a pick. out like a sink and they can check out like vanilla. It's the finest of the flavors. Gonna see the show. That's great. It starts with an earthquake. Birds and snakes and airplane. Lenny Bruce is not a You're tuned into Voice Box with me, your host, Claire.
Chloe Veltman. I'm chatting with Brian Rosen, a Bay Area-based composer and arts blogger, about some of the worst songs in the world and what makes them so hard on the ears. We've been talking about lyrics and more specifically about the fine line between writing clever lyrics and lyrics that try a bit too hard to be smart and end up merely irritating the listener with their smugness. To that end, we just heard The Bare Naked Ladies with One Week, followed by R.E.M.'s It's the End of the World as We Know It and I Feel Fine. Now, related to self-conscious smartness is the issue of a song that generally takes itself too seriously. Brian, why do you dislike songs that venture too far into the world of arch earnestness? This is, again, another issue of taste, um, you know, and because of how I identify myself, the, those sort of like displays of um, overt emotionality uh, just f- strike me as false. Um, and I think, uh, you know, the people who sort of react to these songs that way are, are, are similar. It's like they're like, this is this is ridiculous. I, I don't I don't believe in, in your emotions here. I, I don't believe they're justified. So um, the song that we're going to play in a moment is very well known thanks to the film Titanic. It's Celine Dion's My Heart will go on. Do you think that the uh, song would not be as difficult to listen to if it wasn't for the movie? Or do you think it's, it, regardless, it's uh, Well, I certainly, I certainly had strong feelings about the movie. Um, and it's, it, it is really hard to detach this song from both the movie and her performance in the Oscars and just her performing style in general. Um, it's certainly a package of awfulness. Well, actually, you know, I think she really sings it extremely well. I mean, it's, the song starts off sort of breathy, but at the end of the day, it does end up being an amazing showcase for Celine Dion's voice. I mean, she gets into that belt and she, you know, you sort of feel like you're being carried away with her euphoria, as it were. But yes, I mean, it's, it is extremely uh, heart on your sleeve type of music. If only she used her powers for good. <laughs> All right. Well, here's Celine Dion with My Heart Will Go On. Chloe Veltman and this is Voicebox. I'm with blogger and composer Brian Rosen and we're discussing terrible songs. Don't forget you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook and please download Voicebox's free weekly podcasts by visiting voicebox-media.org or iTunes. Now one thing you can definitely say about the terrible song we just heard, My Heart Will Go On, performed by Celine Dion, besides its ill-advised earnestness, is that it's very catchy. The refrain stays in your head even though it's fiendishly hard to sing. Brian, every track wants to have a hook so you can't wait to hear it. So why do you hook sometimes backfire on a catchy song relegating it to the realms of repulsion? It's hard to know why that happens and I'm pretty sure people have been trying to study the earworm phenomenon. Like why does this hook you know, which is supposed to make you want to hear it and make you, you know, want to listen to it again. Why did the, some of them just do too good of a job? And they don't really have any great 
ideas as to why it is. There are plenty of examples of it, but uh, it, it's just this this so insanely catchy. It's it's almost certainly something to do with um, you know the 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 length of the rhythmic phrase, and maybe it has to do something with your circadian rhythms that or your brain waves. It just happens to hit the just the right frequency, and it just locks in. I remember there was a a story of like how to, how to get rid of a. a an earworm from uh, Andrew Stanton at Pixar by means of, I believe, Penn and Teller wrote in their book that all you'd have to do is you'd have to take the the by Menon, the slogan, the the little jingle, by Menon, which is actually a 511 cadence. Mm-hmm. And that sort of is this big finalizing cadence that will clear your ear of any earworm. Uh, it, can, it can work. <laughs> does it work? It, 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 sometimes it does. Some, by Menon. By Menon, like yeah. that. And then that, that automatically will get rid of Celine Dion or anyone else you want to get rid of. A 5-1 cadence clears everything. That is tremendously good advice. Um, what are some examples of songs for you where, for some reason, the hook doesn't work? It becomes irritating. Um, I'd say it's got to be like Macarena is such a good one because uh, it has that similar sort of like you know one note thing. It's just like repeating the same thing again. Then Macarena. It's like this 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 rhythm that just gets in your body and just won't let go. Mambo Number Five is another one that's that's kind of like that. You know, that's got this sort of shuffle rhythm to it that just gets in your physicality. And and I think that's a lot of what what will make a hook just like really wedge its way in. It's just I think it, you feel it in your body. What about that song by Tony Basel, Hey Mickey, that hey you Mickey. mentioned the other day? Yeah, that, that's got that mm, chick, mm, mm, chick, mm, chick, mm, mm, chick. You just started bouncing your head. And, mm, chick, mm, mm, chick, mm. Hey Mickey, you're so fine, you're so fine, you blow my mind. Hey uh, Mickey. Uh, okay, that's going to be in my head for the rest of the bye, Menon. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, but, you know, a lot of these songs that with these hooks, uh, even the irritating hooks, can actually become some of the greatest guilty pleasures that we have in our lives. Do you have any guilty pleasure types of songs? Well, I mean, I, I think all of those are guilty pleasures when you come in. Like, what I think what happens is, like, what truly happens is for the first, like, 10 or 15 seconds, there's the, the visceral pleasure of, like, your body sort of having that reaction, right? Mm-hmm. And then... Then your your, cere- your 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 cerebral cortex fits in, and then you realize like, oh wait, there's taste going on, and there's there's other people's opinions, and what I like says something about who I am. I'm not allowed to like this, right? <laughs> this this um this hook, this this earworm has already been deemed unacceptable by society. I can't enjoy this anymore. Oh, I can't stand this song. Can you please turn <laughs> off? I think that's what happens. Huh? You know, I'm wondering as well. Uh why it may be one thing that helps somehow mitigate what you're talking about is dancing. For example, I have to say that uh, that one of my favorite guilty pleasures is a lot of this very, very tacky club music. And the thing is, just sitting listening to it isn't it gives you that kind of squirmy feeling about how lame it is. But then if you're dancing, uh, to it in a club, it somehow becomes more accessible, and you're sharing the kind of cheese factor with the people around you, perhaps. Yeah, dancing certainly adds a whole other gamut of things to the equation. Uh, certainly, if you're looking at uh, societal interactions and and what your goals may or may not be when you're on the dance floor. <laughs> so, well, let's listen to the genuinely annoying earworm song "Hey Mickey," sung by Tony Basil, followed by one of my favorite trashy guilty pleasure tracks, the club anthem "Show Me Love." performed by Robin S. Oh, 
Hey Mickey is performed by Tony Basil, followed by the equally trashy and yet, as far as I'm concerned, pleasurable Show Me Love, sung by Robin S. You're listening to the Bad Song edition of Voicebox. I'm Chloe Veltman and my guest in the studio is composer and arts blogger Brian Rosen. Voicebox is available as a free weekly podcast via the Voicebox website at voicebox-media.org and also on iTunes under KALW Voicebox. When it comes to annoying songs, I can think of no one better equipped to talk about this subject than Jim Nader, a connoisseur of the musically tawdry and the host of NPR Chicago's Annoying Music Show. Jim has agreed to share his views on the theme of bad songs on tonight's episode of Voicebox, and we're going to reach him now on the phone. Hi, Jim. Are you there? I am here. Thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure. Thanks for being here. Please give us a bit of background on the Annoying Music Show. What is it exactly and why did you launch it? Well, I have to take a question. You said bad music, and there's a distinction. Okay. Uh, The word is annoying. It almost sums up an art form because bad music, you, if you're listening on the radio, you turn the dial. Annoying music, you know, it's kind of like passing an accident. You don't want to look, but you sort of have to. You can't (laughs) turn it off because there's so many questions. Why did this person record it? Who told them they could? Um, you know, who paid for the studio? Um, <laughs> the best annoying music is a serious good effort gone wrong. And in that way, it becomes an art form because it's often a very talented person, beautiful arrangement. Sometimes it's just the wrong song they picked. Okay. Well, why did you decide to launch the project? Well, it was actually an, uh, has is an all-great award-winning radio it was an accident. Um, I was filling some time for a show after I was just doing some voice announcing. They said, can you fill three minutes? We need more time to set up for this band. And I had this yodeling cowboy, Slim Whitman, on a record. He's pretty famous, and mm-hmm. he yodels the Disney classic, It's a Small World. So I just put it on the turntable, announced for no reason, it's time for the Annoying Music Show. He yodeled his way through. I filled the three minutes. I said, that's all the time we have for the Annoying Music Show. And as soon as I was off, the phones in the studio lit up. Some were, how could you waste their valuable time? Some were, what are you going to play next week? So Annoying Music hits a nerve. It can be Western music, classical, opera, pop. Everyone has that annoying song for some reason that just uh, sticks in your ear, literally, sometimes. How do you go about selecting your playlist for each program? <laughs> if it makes me laugh out loud sometimes, uh, that's the way to do it. Um, I have a uh, very wise parakeet. If I can't decide, I'll play it in front of him, Laszlo, and if he uh, starts to chirp loudly. Um, but really the criteria, we don't play uh-huh. novelty songs per se. We, pay, uh, we play, as I said, it has to be that serious attempt. Now, we've never been able to play certain artists, like Frank Sinatra, I couldn't play. And mm. then I found him singing Mrs. Robinson, the last song on you know, the second side of an album where he seemed to forget the words, and he'd be singing, it's to you, Mrs. Robinson, Julie's going to be mad at you. And it's like, here's the greatest voice in the world. He's got this huge arrangement, the best studio time, and the song is just a disaster. So... When it's that passionate attempt, 
and it just all goes wrong. That's that's the way I select them. So what you're describing makes it sound like a sort of a tragedy that you're aiming for. <laughs> you know, the sort of the uh, the Achilles heel, the hero who who flounders, but it's nevertheless a hero. I mean, is that a a fair way to look at it? Yes, and uh, you know, some, sometimes I do have that guilt of, uh, you know, I don't want to. Um, be making fun of someone but they put the album out they wanted it to be played so i feel like you know it's not i didn't sneak in and record this secretly or anything like that um and in some cases you know in um in this country probably the father of annoying music is considered william shatner captain kirk on star Mm -hmm. trek and when he was on Star Trek, he was very popular and put out these music albums, and everyone just said, these are awful, and he took very serious offense at it. He said, you know, I'm, I'm good, this is an art form. And then he kind of disappeared from the scene, and he came and made a comeback, and I don't know who got to him, his agent or someone, and said, look, you can't sing, this music is awful, but people will eat it up. And since then, he's doing Priceline commercials, he's back on network television, he's putting on an album every year. So it is kind of tragic if the person doesn't realize and they just keep pushing forward. You know, his partner in Star Trek, Leonard Nimoy, put out four or five albums and he still takes it seriously. You know, Mr. Spock singing Proud Mary. It just doesn't work on paper (laughs) or on the record player. Um, So that doesn't qualify as annoying music then? Yes, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. It does qualify. Yes. I see. Okay. So why do you think people are drawn to, to bad or annoying music so much? I think it's those um, question marks. You, you, you know, your ears pick up and you, is this for real? And then you realize it is. Now, you sent me a track entitled Chloe by the Singing Sisters of Syracuse. It's hard to believe that any song entitled Chloe could be anything less than excellent. (laughs) But um, this particular track truly besmirches the name. What can you tell us, Jim, about the song and what makes it so truly annoying, in your opinion? Well, there's a a few factors. It's the Singing Sisters of Syracuse. I grew up with, um, uh, you know, Catholic grammar school with nuns who took singing very seriously and uh on this album they try to do it kind of like uh i guess honky tonk is the word you know with a an old piano and the gang singing around singing and then in the middle of the song all the songs on the album they just break out in kazoos (laughs) that's very rare on an album so you've got all the elements of catholicism these uh spiritual women trying to, you know, get this best music across. Um, Their vocal range is questionable. The selection of the uh, piano arrangement. And then kazoos come out, and it's like... um Oh my God! I have to go to confession after listening to this. <laughs> yeah, to me it just sounded like a, a cacophony, a, a sort of a barnyard, and, the, and they screech when they when they sing the Chloe line. They sing a screeches. It really hurts your ears. <laughs> well, it's a beautiful name, and I'm sorry that uh, you had to hear it. <laughs> no, I love, I love, I love it that you sent it to me. Thank you very much, and thanks, Jim, for sharing your thoughts with us. How can listeners who aren't in the vicinity of the Chicago area access the Annoying Music Show? We are on uh, the NPR station. Chicago, it's WBEZ, and if anyone goes to WBEZ.org, there's a lot of shows archived there, or they can hear it live on Saturday nights over uh, the internet as well. And uh, I'm sorry if I annoyed anyone. (laughs) And now for our listening displeasure, the Singing Sisters of Syracuse with Chloe.
Tonight's voice box is dedicated to exploring badness in vocal music. We just heard the Singing Sisters of Syracuse with Chloe. In the studio with me is blogger and composer Brian Rosen. I've also just been chatting on the phone with Jim Nader, the host of NPR's Annoying Music Show and the person responsible for supplying the terrible song we just heard. Brian, when we were exploring the different ways in which songs can be bad, you introduced the idea of the offensiveness of inoffensiveness, which is intriguing. How are inoffensive songs bad? Uh, this is another situation where your the, the your tastes define who you are, and inoffensiveness is something that you you basically associate with your parents or your grandparents. So Lawrence Welk, um, or or Pat Boone, or all these sort of like wholesome folks, which are you know not necessarily fashionable things in in contemporary society, and so people don't want to be associated with that. Well, what is it exactly that Pat Boone did that was so deplorable, in your opinion? Well, I I wouldn't say deplorable. What he did was he sort of would take um, music, which was sort of edgy and popular, and create a sort of like watered down um, sort of white bread version of them that would be acceptable. Uh, So maybe your parents would let you buy that music and listen to it and uh, wouldn't uh, throw out your records. Right. And I mean, it is interesting that Pat Boone's version of the song Tutti Frutti, which of course was a a, a big hit for Little Richard, uh, led at 12 in the pop charts and it ranked ahead of Little Richard's version, which was uh, in 17th position. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a bit of a tragedy there, um, which I think ultimately history has corrected. So inoffensiveness can sometimes have a work in a song's favor, right? Oh, sure. Yeah, it makes it more palatable for the masses. I mean, look at Vanilla Ice. Yeah, and what about though? Sometimes how you can take a song and uh, and and maybe kind of put it into a more sort of easy music type of context, but that can sometimes be pretty great. I mean, I'm thinking in particular of Paul Anker and his covers of a lot of grunge songs from the 90s and indie indie rock hits. I mean, he turned them into these big swinging lounge things, which uh, is classic easy listening. And in some ways, it does sort of vanillaize the song. But on the other hand, I mean, I think his versions of certain songs are pretty amazing. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 you sort of flip it all the way around again, where you just make it ironic. So now it's like cool and hip again. Yeah, um, that's what's going and, on, I guess. And they're often, you know, they're often pretty darn good arrangements. I'm, I'm thinking of uh, Paul Anka's stuff and Richard Cheese's stuff, actually. You know, those are a bunch of great musicians uh, taking these sort of originally, you know, edgy rock songs that and then turning them ironically into these lounge covers, which are themselves both actually really good to listen to. And you also have this extra parallel level of like, oh, I can't believe he's singing this song. <laughs> Rising up, 
back on the street Did my time, took my chances I went the distance, now I'm back on my feet Just a man with the will to survive Pat Boone with Tutti Frutti and Paul Anker's cover of Eye of the Tiger. I'm Chloe Veltman and this is Voicebox. Check out our free weekly podcast on iTunes by searching for KALW Voicebox and follow us please on Facebook and Twitter. You can also do all of the above via our website at voicebox-media.org. Let's turn our attention now briefly to Western classical music. Discussions of badness are indeed few and far between and the examples are usually not to be taken seriously. Shirley Temple, la la laing her way through Lucia di Lammermoor in the 1936 movie Captain January, and Florence Foster Jenkins singing just about anything from her repertoire. A case is in point. Inimitable Florence Foster Jenkins with her infamous recording of the bell song from Lacme by Leo Delib. The track was preceded by Shirley Temple's rendition of an aria from Donizetti's Lucia di la Mer Mor. That's the Florence Foster Jenkins tracks are a perfect example of, of what Jim was, was speaking of earlier. It's like, that's a, that's a train wreck. You listen to that and you want to know what was going on. Mm-hmm. How did this happen? What what made this happen? And I think there's a whole genre of, of, of music that I think is mostly featured in his show uh, of stuff that for all intents and purposes should not have happened. This shouldn't have happened. <laughs> and, and so when you listen to it and you try to, you want to know the backstory, you want to know what was going on in these people's minds. So what are some examples of songs that are transcendentally bad in your view and why do they belong in this category? Um, well, I, I, so I always think of um, Shuby Taylor uh, mm-hmm. is is one of my favorites, uh, who is basically someone who made a career of essentially, well, maybe not quite a career, but but of taking tracks, pre-existing tracks, and then scatting over them. But his version of scatting wasn't so much scatting in the style of, well, Ella or anybody you've ever heard before. It's this sort of like weird combination of grunting and groaning that is... Uh, fascinating to listen to um i don't think it would it would sort of cross the levels of being good by any stretch of the imagination but it's certainly intriguing um 
And uh, another one uh, who's in a similar vein is uh, somebody known uh, as Wesley Willis, um, who wrote these songs, which are pretty much all the same song, essentially, where he would basically write a verse that was basically talking about a celebrity, uh, basically just listing a list of their accomplishments or what they have done or who they are, or just random facts about them. And then the chorus would be basically that celebrity's name uh, spoken over and over again. But there's sort of a darker side to this entire thing, because um, I think both of those forms of music were kind of products of mental illness. Mm-hmm. And, and there's something a little bit uncomfortable about what was going on there. Like, we're listening to these things and celebrating them. But on the other hand, are we ridiculing them? I remember Wellesley Willis used to tour and open for some bands, and it was sort of strange. You'd wonder, like, mm-hmm. is he? Is this a minstrel show? Is he being victimized? Uh, are we laughing at him? Are we celebrating him? It's, it's a sort of strange ethical quandary that occurs with some of these acts. What about the Shags? I know they're a personal favorite of yours. The Shags. The Shags. They are such a wonderful, wonderful band. Um, Frank Zappa called them better than the Beatles. Even today. Um, yeah, they, they're amazing. This is the story of these this family, uh, these three girls, sisters, who were purchased instruments by their father, who essentially forced them into the recording studio after they had barely learned how to play their instruments. And they recorded an album of original songs, not really knowing how to play their instruments or knowing much about music at all. But they crafted these songs, which at first listen, you think like, oh, this is just a ramble. They're just sort of like making it up as they go along. There's no meter here. The drums are playing in one time signature and the the vocal phrasing, just like it's sometimes it's in four, sometimes it's in seven, sometimes Mm. it's in two. There's where's the where's the beat? Where's the beat? And you think they're just making it up, but then you realize that the guitar is playing the exact same line as the melody, and there are actually two people singing the melody, so this is planned. Mm-hmm. This is written. This is composed. It's amazing, amazing stuff. You've called it ur music. Yeah, ur music. Uh, so, so Noam Chomsky uh, has this idea of there's this sort of fundamental music of man uh, that it's universal, and I think that this this stuff that we hear in in the Shags is ur music. This is this is you know, filtered through a sort of '60s pop sensibility because that's sort of the vocabulary they know, but they're coming at it from a completely um, naive. Uh, point of view and so you have this this is fundamental music of man or perhaps fundamental music of like 14 or 15 year old girls growing up in the 60s and it's fascinating and wonderful and amazing to listen to you know it's interesting when i looked at uh shag's music on itunes it's labeled as unclassifiable uh in the genre category what's that about i think it truly is unclassifiable because there's really nothing else like it um, and it's exactly the sort of music that, you know, if you at first listen to it, it's incomprehensible. But then you think of like, okay, well, um, Webern, uh, John Cage, uh, any number of, of contemporary modern intelligent musics are kind of unlistenable or unintelligible at first listening. And you want to know what's going on there. And sort of you, you sort of piece it together. You learn how to listen to this stuff. And I think the Shags, although the compositional intent isn't necessarily there at the level of, say, Webern or, or Berg um, or, or, or Schoenberg, uh, there is mu- that is music that needs to learn to be listened to. All right, let's listen now to My Pal Foot Foot by The Shags, Shuby Taylor with Stout-Hearted Men, and Alanis Morissette by Wesley Willis.
find him home I go to his house Knock at his door People come out and say Foot, foot, don't live here no more My elbow foot, foot, foot Always like to We shoot the saw, shoot the spar Do the raw, do the saw, do the raw Simply we done, simply don't We da da shraw La pa sa, da da ra, la da shri, lo pu pa, da du sa, simili dwina, simili dun tu baba, re, sha da ha, sha pa gra, sa pa sa, sha pa ra, sa pa da, sha pa ha, simili du da, tu pe me, tu pe me, ben simili di da la, ben tu te ten, tu pe du shra, su, sha da, ra, sa, pa da ha, simili di da, simili du tu pe me, ben simili di da la, ben tu le do tu pe me, ben simili di da la, Iraq star, you are Iraq legend to the max. You can really knock it out. You can really whoop a horse's ass. You are a Rocky maniac. You are a singing hyena. You are a rock star in Jesus. A trio of transcendentally terrible vocal music offerings. My Pal Foot Foot by The Shags, Shuby Taylor with Stout-Hearted Men and Alanis Morissette by Wesley Willis. On tonight's Voice Box with me, Chloe Veltman, we're exploring what elements go into making a song really hard on the eardrums. My guest in the studio tonight is blogger and composer Brian Rosen. Our time is almost up for this week, Brian, but I feel like we should return briefly to the song we started this show with, Friday by Rebecca Black. It seems like over the course of just listening and thinking just tonight, we've uh, evolved, I suppose, in our opinion of the song. And you mentioned this phrase, the uncanny valley, which is uh, an expression from robotics. Can you talk a bit about that and its relationship to the song? Yeah. So so the uncanny valley is an idea that... Um uh, if, if something in computer graphics doesn't look at all like a human or looks caricatured, maybe we respond to it fairly well. If it looks exactly like a human being, we also respond to it fairly well. But there's this strange area where it looks almost like a human being, but not quite, that we have a really negative emotional response. Uh, and I, you know, in my personal opinion, things like... Um, uh, the Polar Express movies, the, a lot of the Zemeckis stuff, like sort of really hits the uncanny valley where it's like, ooh, that just doesn't look right and I'm disturbed and it's creepy. Um, I think the Rebecca Black song is sort of a victim of the uncanny valley because it's not a very good song, but its production values are such, it's produced in such a way that it is a really good song. It's produced as if this were supposed to be a big hit instead of this girl just sort of like singing a fairly bad song. And I think it's hitting the uncanny valley of popular music. Brian, thank you so much for coming in and sharing your thoughts on this theme with me. Thank you, Chloe. It's been a blast. To find out more about Brian's work as a composer and blogger, visit www.musicversustheatre.com. And the versus part in the middle of that is just V-S and theatre is spelt E-R. For more information about call-in guest Jim Nader's The Annoying Music Show, please visit chicagopublicradio.org. Voicebox is an independently produced non-profit project recorded 
recorded at the studios of KALW in San Francisco. Our series producer is Seth Samuel and the web editor is Victoria Lim. Voicebox needs your support. To find out how you can make a tax-deductible donation to keep us on the air, please visit our website at voicebox-media.org. Donating is safe, easy and tax-deductible through our online PayPal link. Check out our free weekly podcasts on iTunes and visit our homepage to mull over and respond to the question of the week. We love to know what you think of us, so friend us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And you can also write to us anytime at info at voicebox-media.org. I'll play us out with another classic from the Shags, Sweet Thing. Tonight's playlist notwithstanding, have a songful week. Thank you.